Hello, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Music's podcast, episode six. I am your host, Anthony Vanga. And this week we have a special guest. And actually, This Week in Music's first interview, Ricardo Sambach. Ricardo is a music executive, label owner, a music manager, and I have known him for almost 18 years. We had lunch a few months ago in Madrid, and we talked about how and where musicians are making or not making money these days. The conversation was fascinating because it really explained something that many people keep asking me, which is, how do musicians, famous and not so famous, make money in today's market when there are no physical sales, as in no CD sales? The answer is complicated, but Ricardo was able to break it down in such a way as to make it clear, and today we get the chance to hear it straight from him. But first, we're going to do a Greatest Hits bio for Ricardo, just so that you can get a sense of who we're talking to and an idea of his experience in the music industry. He went into finance out of college, but he was drawn to the music business out of an incredible love for music. He worked his way up through various jobs until he landed at Sony Music in 2008 and became the director of A&R and licensing. In 2009, he switched over to Universal Music Group. He then moved as a general manager in 2012 to Sony Music, RCA. He was responsible for all day-to-day operations of RCA Label Group, largest in UK by market share, as well as medium and long-term strategic decisions. In 2014, he left to set up his own company, Red and Gold Management, Zambac Limited. And what he does now is he manages bands. He also owns a label. And as you can tell from his bio, he has an enormous amount of experience. So it's going to be fascinating talking to him about the economics of the music business today. What you're about to hear is an edited excerpt from that interview, which was done over Zoom with me in London and Ricardo in Madrid. Enjoy. Firstly, I want to say welcome to This Week in Music's podcast. You are episode number six, Ricardo, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to get straight into it because basically every single party I go to, someone comes up to me and says, you know, what do you do? I say, I'm in the music industry. And they go, oh, really? So how do musicians make money these days? And we talked about it when we were last in, in Madrid together. And I thought it'd be great just to to chat about that. So I have five questions for you. So let's get in straight with number one. Now that physical sales records are almost zero, apart from vinyl, of course, which mm-hmm. is, you know, making a bit of a comeback, but basically it's zero. Yeah. You know, how do artists make money today? You know, I think you're absolutely right that physical sales are fundamentally dead, physical referring to anything that's that's non-streaming and non-download. Even downloads are, are minimal at this stage. The business is really sitting on the streaming services and streaming platforms. Mostly audio, but uh, you've got places like YouTube, which is probably the most uh, frequented uh, platform for music consumption, actually. Um, and uh, and of course, you got places like TikTok now, uh, you know, ByteDance properties that are huge on on availability of music, right? Yeah, I think what you've just said is that the sale of records is no longer the main driver of revenue. So that, you know, before a band would go into a studio, they'd spend a certain amount of money and then they'd produce CDs and people would buy them at 20 bucks and they'd make pretty good living off that. But an artist today, not just looking at records, where are they making their money? They're not making their money from CDs or vinyl or streaming, which we'll get into later. Where are they able to fund themselves and actually make a living? 
there's a variety of different artists, right? It's, it's, uh, there's many different genres. There's uh, people that are a bit more reclusive. There's people that are more prominent. I'd say on the streaming side, that's probably the main driver for either discovery or for generating income. I think the math is roughly on Spotify, which is the leading service or platform in terms of generating income for recorded music. Uh, I'd say you're probably looking at about $4,000 per million streams, rough breakdown that comes in and that comes into the label or that could be the label that the artist signed to. And many artists these days are obviously releasing on their own and doing distribution deals, which means you have to do all the work yourself in terms of you know shooting your videos and setting up your promo and hiring your teams that can do your marketing for you and your radio and your PR. But then you're taking a much bigger piece of the pie, right? So you're probably ending up with you know 80 cents on the dollar as opposed to going through one of the major labels who do all that stuff for you. And they end up with 80 cents on the dollar and you end up with 20. So Really, it's a question of which way do you want to go? What do you want to do? I feel like in the more recent years, the music business is a bit more clued up to ownership. So artists are retaining their rights a lot more and then either licensing to a major label or distributing themselves. I think there's so many choices now where distribution before was relatively niche. Uh, over the past 10, 15 years, all these big distribution companies have either flourished even more or have been bought up by some of the majors. And I think part of that is also that music is so accessible these days. It's quite, as you mentioned before, you know, you used to go into studio and spend money and you'd have a recording. Well, you really have to go into studio these days. Yes. It's really great for a lot of things, but really with just a laptop and everything you can have on it, you can effectively record an incredible album just in your bedroom. And we've seen that time and time again. Talk to me a little bit about touring, merch, festivals, sponsorships, that kind of side of the business, because obviously that's the side of the business that we, we talked about before. And I was I was really intrigued at how you can get your artists to to get plugged into that kind of thing. I see it. I mean, I obviously I have a couple of things going on. I have a label and, and a management company. And then we, we do a few other things. I've got a couple of partners in different places around the world. And we do some really diverse stuff in the music business. So we're able to see quite a bit. I'd say on the management side, we try to put out the biggest songs possible with the biggest visibility possible, the biggest adoption. And that in turn drives touring or visibility for the artist. And when you really break it down, if you've got an artist who is successful at touring, that is probably the biggest piece of the income pie. Really, it's where it's at. Is if you can really get your touring side of things motoring, that's probably going to become your biggest paycheck. Now, referring before to the ownership of copyrights and ownership of, of what you're producing, the streaming revenue, okay, it's a recurring income on an annual basis. That's pretty healthy, but it's it's it could be easily shadowed by touring. However, that ownership, as we've seen in recent years, at some point, you can decide to sell at a multiple of 10, 15, 20, and then there is a big payday, but it's a one-off lump sum in a way, right? So you're kind of building that up to potentially sell down the line or just have a recurring income. But again, going back to your question, I'd say uh, ultimately looking at, at my acts and looking generally at, at what's going on, touring, touring is where it's at. I think private events, yeah, they're part of it, depending on who you are. Merchandising, it's incredibly lucrative for, I guess, uh, pop acts that appeal to late teens, early 20s. And I'd say merch is also incredibly healthy for what we call sort of the black t-shirt crowd, metal bands, rock acts. They tend to buy a lot of merch, I think. The in-betweens, you can do well, but it's not as healthy. It's not, you know, your $10, $20 a head which you might squeeze out of the gig. Let's talk about tennis a little bit because we're right in the middle of Wimbledon. An interesting thing came out on the news the other day where they were talking about this journeyman player, a fantastic player, a French guy called Muller, 
and he was playing against Alcaraz. And the guy's been on the tour for 10 years and they looked into how much he'd made on the tour. He'd made $700,000, okay, in prize money over the last 10 years. That's 70 grand a year. If you take away his travel and his coaches and his hotels and all that stuff, basically he's running at a loss, right? So you're talking about bands who are touring and merch and festivals and sponsorships and streaming. You know, those are pretty large bands. What about the guys that are just a little bit underneath that? We know that many bands that we still listen to today, it took four or five records before they finally broke, right? So how are bands like that surviving and getting themselves into a position where they can step up like a tennis player after a few years, start getting to the second round, third rounds of, of major tournaments? And, you know, How are those guys doing it? I think music consumption, people who go to shows, people who follow bands or artists are an enormous number compared to people who follow tennis and people who buy tickets to any kind of tennis tournament, right? So I do think there is a lot more money and there's a lot more of an audience for music. So I think even if you're not in the top 10, top 20 or top 100 globally, you can make quite a healthy living. You have to remember that in music, you also have people that are very big potentially in one territory and one country, but are unknown elsewhere who perform in a certain language that maybe is not universal and they can make an amazing living out of it. Um, and then there's, um, there's, I guess, the smaller bands that little by little, I mean, I think as long as you're seeing progress, as long as you're going from like a 100 cap venue to a 200 cap venue to a 500 cap venue, and you can see that things are moving along, I think there's always hope. And I think you can adjust your budgets so that you're not operating at a loss, right? So you can make a living in music. I think I might sound a little bit sort of out of touch with some acts who are really struggling. But generally speaking, I think if you have good infrastructure around you and you're releasing records that are then driving awareness for, for you and then touring on the back of that and being, it's, it's down to you as well. Connecting with your fans, putting the effort in on social media, responding to anybody who comments, making them feel like they're part of a world or a scene or whatever it is. I mean, I think that's that's also something else that's that's enormous in the music business. It's fan engagement because that effectively drives your entire business, be it streaming, be it touring, be it merch, being whatever else. It's tough. It's hard. But I worked with a with a guy who couldn't sell 50 tickets, but was a songwriter and managed to place his songs with a couple of big acts. So he's just a songwriter on it. But that's turned out to, to be a pretty lucrative publishing deal, even though nobody would even know who he is as an artist. He's just a great writer. And on the other hand, you've got acts that are touring and touring and touring and put out records that don't really connect. But you know, they've got excitement when you go to a show. So people want to go again. Um, so there's I think there's there's a lot of ways of slicing and dicing in the music business. But going back to what I just mentioned before, I think ultimately somebody needs to be engaged with you, be it sonically or be it live, and you need to really cultivate your fan base. Okay, let's go on to another question, which is streaming. So you touched on it uh, just earlier, saying that you gave some numbers about $4,000 per million. So probably the immediate reaction from the layman would be, that's nothing. Can you talk a little bit about streaming and, and the money, how that sort of works for a certain kind of artist who's maybe thinning two, three, four hundred people venues. Streaming is uh, is hugely important, not just for discovery, but also as an income source. I did throw out that number before, roughly $4,000 per million streams, which doesn't sound like a lot necessarily, especially because there's so much music being uploaded on a daily basis. I'm talking tens of thousands of tracks that are at infinitely small numbers, but you kind of have to look at what those are, right? Who is it? Is it you and me basically playing the Congress for 20 minutes and then editing that and putting it up? Like, who the hell is going to necessarily 
go for that. But um, but I think, um, you know, Apple pays more, by the way. You know, I'm talking about Spotify there. Apple tends to pay up to 50% more than Spotify, which is quite healthy. And then YouTube obviously pays less. But there's, there's, there's ranges, obviously. But I think the beauty of streaming is the long tail, in a way. So I think what you ultimately want to do with streaming is get on playlists. If you put something up and it's just sitting on your own page, okay, that's good. But then you got to drive traffic to it. Like what you're ultimately trying to do is get the editors or people who third-party playlisters or anybody out there to put your tracks on their playlist because they have the followers and they have people coming to listen to the collection of songs that they've put up. And obviously they, they hit your song at some point while they're going through it and they may save it they may share it they may not do anything about it and just play the playlist again another time but yeah, ultimately on the streaming side what you want to do is put out music regularly because i think that helps algorithmically to get a little bit more visibility and profile and i think you want to cultivate relationships with people who can help get you into into playlists which is ultimately what drives the numbers and is ultimately what it's discovery in a way, you keep coming back to this, the idea of discovery. So it seems like if you're a massive artist, right, then you're, you're making pretty good money off, off streaming because the numbers are just so stratospheric, right? It's just you're talking about hundreds of millions. For lesser artists, it's really about getting your work out there and, and getting people to, to, to listen to it. I think if you are releasing music on streaming platforms and you control your own master, as we mentioned before, and you have independent distribution, you can go on TuneCore for, for nothing, for, for 20 bucks, and you get 100% of the income. You know, a million streams, two million streams, it's eight grand. 10 grand, it starts to add up to being some money. If you're signed to a major label or you're signed to, to a label with, with a different split, you might have 10 million streams, 20 million streams, 40 million streams and not see a penny. So it really, I don't know who exactly your audience is listening to this, but if it's... Uh... I think most of them would be music lovers looking in at this world where they're reading things about Spotify and TikTok, which is our next subject, and not really understanding the economics of it and how it works. And, and what's great is that you're you're laying it out in a clear way you own your own masters right you're going to be making four grand per million so you get five six million that's you're starting to make some money if you're signed to a major label you're going to need to hit 40 50 million before you see any any revenue uh, these are very rough numbers things change um, but what i'm saying is you're signed to a major obviously you get an advance they fund everything all that investment on their side needs to be recouped before you get paid and that's going to take a while whereas if you're able to self-fund which is my preference and what i'm driving all my artists to do is to try to self-fund and then occasionally do a deal with a major where you try to squeeze out more favorable terms than the ones I just mentioned. Okay, let's talk about TikTok. TikTok is everywhere, breaking, you know, artists like country star Bailey Zimmerman, which is a recent one, Wet Leg, Fred again, one of my favorites. How do you use this platform for your artists and, and what works best to connect to an audience? Are there any rules does anything go? How do you approach TikTok for your guys? First of all, let's say TikTok has become the number one point of conversation in the music business. Long gone are the days where an A&R man would go to a show and hear an incredible voice and say, oh my God, I need to sign this. They go and hear an incredible voice and then they go, how many followers do they have on TikTok? And how is the music spreading on TikTok? And what do they have on Instagram? And what do these socials look like? Right. So it's becoming very much a numbers game, not a feelings game. And TikTok is the number one music discovery driver at the moment. It's an enormous platform. I think half the entire world is on it. And I guess because it's short form, in a sense, you can have 20 seconds of a track, 30 seconds of a track, 10 seconds of a track. It can get a little bit repetitive if somebody's scrolling through and hear maybe the same track two, three times, and all of a sudden you've made an impression where people are connecting with the music. And then whatever is happening on TikTok 
probably a few weeks later, you start seeing these tracks start to bubble up on streaming services. So it's almost like a precursor to what's going to happen. If you start getting traction on TikTok, you tend to see a result on streaming services down the line. So let's say you have an artist, right? It's not necessarily a pop artist where he's doing, you can do some crazy dances. Maybe it's a bit more of a, not serious, but like a bit more of a indie pop, maybe rock. You know, how do they position themselves on TikTok? Because obviously TikTok works really well with silly dancers and, and dogs and kind of crazy human behavior. How does this stuff that's a bit more serious work? Yeah, but I think the dances and the sort of choreographed stuff is part of it and has been in the past. But I think TikTok is just such a vast platform that it can be anything. If you have a lullaby, you can just put that music to narcoleptic dogs and it becomes a funny thing that people share. And all of a sudden that lullaby has traction. I think it's about putting the music to engage in content, the audience's ability to connect with that and then share. And things just catch fire. Or there's trends, things that are happening songs that all of a sudden pick up for no reason. I mean, I think also the beauty of TikTok is that it can be a contemporary song, a brand new song, or you see catalog just being revived. Music that was out 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, all of a sudden has an incredible life because somebody's done a TikTok to it. It's got a funny lyric that connects or is relevant for whatever is happening in the world. But going back to your question, how to use TikTok? I mean, I've spent money for my artists and I've, and I've had labels fund influencer campaigns, right? Where you go to, to one of these agencies and you give them X amount and they go, okay, well, I've got this one who's got a million followers and this one who's got 505,000 followers and this one's got 10,000 and we're going to get them all to do a dance or or do a thing to it, and then from there it's going to spread and we're going to have enormous success. The reality is it doesn't quite work that way. You can go and spend that money, and but I think consumers are quite aware of what's going on and very often see through it. I think sometimes these influencers are, they'll take the money and not necessarily put their, their heart and soul into it. But I think the key is to keep releasing things, to keep playing with TikTok. You put something up with a certain image, with a certain sound, and you'll get X number of likes or shares or whatever. And then you put something else the next day and it'll be double the number. And then you go, hmm, why did that work? Okay, let's try a little bit more of that. So it's a bit trial and error. And I think in TikTok, anything goes. Anything goes. I think also the beauty of it is that it doesn't need to be anything super produced, super edited or anything like that. I think it's also sometimes the more natural it is, the better. But I think it's a lot of trial and error and, and luck. It's a theme in everything you're saying, which is that you believe the artist should own their own copyright. You believe that the artist should be in control of their own career. You can go out to influencers and, and pay you know agencies money to do stuff on TikTok. But actually, the more authentic stuff that you do in-house, the stuff that you do yourself, which you've just said is obviously lower cost, tends to resonate better with the audience. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I think some of these influencer campaigns have worked. That's why those agencies are surviving. And that's why those agencies in some places are thriving. But I wouldn't put all my chips on that. And based on my experience, I, I think the best thing is for the artists, as I was mentioning before, to connect with their audience, you know, respond to your, your DMs and put out content when somebody likes it, say something back and just keep trying different things because sometimes something more somber would work, sometimes something a bit more funny, sometimes something silly, just do different things. And whatever starts to connect and gives you better numbers, just chase that a little bit more. Okay, second to last question. So let's talk about what being a good manager means nowadays. Obviously, we have the image of the all-powerful cricket bat carrying manager right from the olden days, Led Zev Speeder Grant. But this type of manager has largely disappeared from view, or has it? You know, what, what does a successful manager look like today? You know, what, what is that person, male or female? What, what are they doing? What do they need to do? 
I personally think management is the toughest it's ever been because there are so many things going on with an artist, so many different platforms, so many different things that you need to be on top of. I think before you were mentioning the time when you recorded an album and you put it out through a label and it ended up in the shops and there was no social media and there was fanzines and there was word of mouth and there was people hanging out at each other's houses going, oh, what is that? And now it, it's so much to keep up with and so many trends even within those multiple platforms and different things that you need to be doing in each of them, right? And you do need to be present in at least a couple of them. Like everybody has their preferred platform. You don't have to be fully engaged in all of them, but you do need to pick the ones that you're going to put your effort into and go after them. But you, as a manager, I guess you need to be aware of everything that's happening. There's the sync business, there's the record labels, there's the publishing side of things, there's the touring side of things, there's financial advice, there's pensions. For the most part, the life of, of an artist or the, the successful life of an artist, and in great cases like the Rolling Stones or, or whoever it might be, yeah, it's over decades and decades, but generally speaking, it's got a bit of a shelf life. At some point, you're not going to be able to necessarily make a living out of it, and then what are you left with, right? So I think we're also, as managers, not only trying to get the most visibility and the most financial success success for the acts, artists, writers, producers that we're working with, but we're also having the view down the line to where is this going to leave you in a few years? So I think it's everything, really. It's really crazy because I grew up uh, working at labels. So I always saw what the recorded music side of things did. And then I moved over to the management and then I do have my own label as well. But on the management side, all of a sudden records is 30% of that world, potentially, I'm just saying a number. And then there's this whole rest of a pie of things that are coming at you every day. And everything goes through the manager, everything, everything. It's not just getting a call at midnight on a Friday saying, you know, where's my car? It's negotiating the bigger deals and following up, having your weekly calls, making sure the team that's supporting you is there, staying on top of people. Sometimes you take out that bat and sometimes you take out your soft little white glove. But no, I mean, I think it's a 24-7 job. We work weekends, we work all the time, and we cover every single aspect of the business. So let me ask you just briefly about within that question before we go to the last one. There's a lot of talk about the mental health of artists nowadays, the pressure. You know, you just saw Lewis Capaldi or Glastonbury with his Tourette syndrome. It was really sad to see. So as a manager, is that something that you discuss with your artists? Is that topic not no longer taboo anymore? Is it something that you only talk about when your artist wants to talk about it? Or do you lay it on the table right from the get-go by saying, look, this is a tough gig. If you're feeling depressed or anxious, give me a call. I have things in place to take care of it. Yeah. Again, I mean, I think every artist is different, just like every individual is. Some are mentally stronger than others, and some have a different socioeconomic background, and some have a different support system. So it really varies enormously. I think the mental health conversation has been normalized across the board, across all industries and, and everywhere over the last decade, let's say, or even even more over the last five years. So it's a really easy conversation to have. It's a two-way thing. Sometimes if you kind of sense that something's not quite right, you'll ask the question. And sometimes it'll be the artist who comes to you and says, listen, this is what's going on. Can you help me out? But generally speaking, I think it's a pretty open conversation. It's not necessarily a daily topic. I've, I've worked with a variety of acts over time and you get all kinds of stuff, right? You've got, I've, I've had acts that are incredibly mentally strong and I've had others that I've had to put through therapy and even cancel shows and, and cancel events because they just weren't able to do it. So it, it's quite prevalent. I mean, I think also in this industry, it's late nights, it, it's a lot of adulation. It's kind of hard to keep grounded, especially as you start to take off. 
think I'm a relatively stable person and I always try to just temper things with my artists and just say, listen, you got to be ambitious and you want to rule the world and just stay a little bit grounded because the fall can be absolutely terrible if you go with the fairies, as they say, you know. Excellent. Q5, last question. For anyone wanting to start out in the music industry as an executive or a manager, what advice would you give them about how to plot their career and where to look for work in the music capitals of the world? London, New York, Nashville, Miami, and Los Angeles. Listen, I'm going to tell you my story very quickly. I'm the son of a banker. I studied economics. I went into finance when I finished uni. I played in a band when I was in high school. I DJed when I was in college. I, like Music was almost always a hobby and a passion. I went into finance and... I swear within a month of being in there, I was like, there's no way I can do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to do this till I'm 60 or 65 or whatever it is, retirement age. There's there's no way I was like genuinely like sick on Sunday nights knowing that I had to go to work the next day. So very early on, when I was 22, I, I decided to pivot very quickly. And I was like, okay, what I really, really, really love and the only thing that really excites me is music. So I think what I did is I gave up my nice salary and my BMW and my assistant and I went knocking on every label's door. I had no contacts in the music business. I don't come from a music family. And I got loads and loads of rejection letters from everywhere until one day somebody at Columbia Records in New York called me saying they had a temp job for me because somebody had gone on holiday that week and they needed somebody to answer the phones and make coffee. So I did that and they liked me and then they offered me a job in the classical department for a couple of weeks. And then I went back to the pop department and then eventually I just found my way. But that's kind of how I started at the very, very bottom. And then I always say also music is it's a bit like a trade. It's like you can't really study the business, even though there's all kinds of courses and stuff. You need to be in it to really understand it. It's a bit like, I don't know, like plumbing or carpentry. You really need to feel your way around and see how things develop. And the more you're in it, the better. But back to your question I guess there's so many ways of doing it you can start off as an agent you can start off in an ad agency doing syncs for music and then move on to a label from there my story is what i just told you just because i was absolutely passionate and crazy about music and i i realized that i didn't want to do anything else six questions favorite band favorite band right now right now all right right now is 1975 favorite singer uh aretha franklin nice favorite song it's gotta be an abba song i don't know which one but it's gotta be an abba song which one when it takes it all i like it favorite songwriter favorite songwriter max martin wow best gig ever rolling stones at glastonbury okay well listen ricardo thank you so much for your time you spoke so eloquently it was fantastic to hear your insights and thank you for being a guest on this week in music thanks so much for having me anthony really really enjoyable You've just listened to This Week in Music with your host, Anthony Vanger. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also read the full blog on thisweekinmusic.blog or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn.